in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from deep in the heart of Texas, Mr. Dustin Melbardis. How are you doing, sir? Good evening, Russell. I'm excited about tonight. I am excited, too. We are bringing back former host, Mr. Nathan Lutz. How are you doing, sir? I am back. I'm excited. And I'm looking forward to reviewing my favorite genre, the science fiction movies. I am looking forward to it. And we're going way back into that. Before we get into today's movie, today's a silent movie. We don't do this all very often, but it's a 1920s movie. Now, Nathan, if you were to convert a modern movie, take it back and make it in the silent movie era, meaning before 1927, meaning you got in a time ship, Dr. Evil style, you're going to blow everybody's minds and take credit for some creation of somebody else's, <laughs> but do it in the silent movie era. What are you going to do that with? You know, I'm going to go back in time, take a movie that's very important, but maybe could use a little bit of help. Might benefit from losing a few quibbles, like it's entire dialogue track <laughs> and i'm gonna put star wars episode two attack of the clones as a silent movie what a choice what is it about episode two that made it like oh this is the one the dialogue is the worst i see where he's going with that yes i think the specific ability to say i'm going to take all of this dialogue and give myself the ability to after the fact after a few people <laughs> have had maybe a look at this give some people the ability to retype about half the lines. Hmm. <laughs> Good choice. I mean, there's no wrong time to remake Attack of the Clones, I suppose. So <laughs> any time in history is the right time to try that again. So, Dustin, how about you? What movie you're going to originally do in the 20s? I guess if I'm getting in the time machine, I looked at this question. I thought to myself, what's the first thing that comes to mind? And it was the mask. But I didn't like that answer. But I went with another <laughs> comedy. <laughs> which is dumb and dumber. I think <laughs> the delivery of those jokes with some excellent face acting from Rubberface himself, Jim Carrey, and also just uh, his partnership with Jeff Daniels, you could utter those jokes silently and then have the text card come up. And I think it would be just as funny. Oh, Jim would be funny. That's a really good answer. Just like getting Jim Carrey in the silent movie era would work. I think it would work, and in particular, his Lloyd Christmas character, I think, would work. He kind of has, in a way, that haircut seems of an older time. I just think it could be great. I am influenced by the immediacy of having Nathan on the show. Nathan's first podcast he did with us, if I recall, is Clue from a long time ago. And I thought, wouldn't Clue be fun in a silent movie murder comedy yes. where we have six people being funny and being perhaps a little bit more slapsticky in the 1920s? It even gives you what exactly the title cards would look like, because they've got title cards in that movie. Yes, they do. Endings. Flames on the side of my face. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a red herring. <laughs> that, of course, was a red herring. Today, what are we going to cover, Nathan? 
Today we are going to cover a movie whose runtime we will desperately try to remain <laughs> shorter than <laughs> Metropolis from 1927. Yes, hopefully we'll keep the whole episode intact for the next foreseeable future. So. We may not have to do several restorations of this episode. We'll try to put anything we missed in the description. <laughs> this movie stars Alfred Abel, Bridget Helm, Gustav Rolick, Rudolf Kleinrog. It is released in 1927. This is now the officially the oldest movie we have done. This is even older than the Chaplin film, The Circus, we have done. So this is, this is as far back as we've gone. We're willing to go as far back as there's film. But uh, here we go. This is our oldest. The budget for this one is 1.5 million marks, which you can convert that with inflation and all that stuff and all that if you want to at home. But it was a costly movie. It was one of the most expensive movies at the time. And this film nearly sent UFA or Universum Film into bankruptcy. It grosses 75,000 royal marks domestically. This is not a financial uh, landslide for them. In fact, it, it's not a big hit financially. So this movie lives on more through its legacy and for what it's done and for what it's influenced after the fact than what it did in the box office at the time. The number one movie that year is The Jazz Singer. And if you're wondering if that sounds familiar, that is the first talking movie that people showed up for to hear the films speak to you. That would have been a mind blower. Uh, Metropolis gets an 8.3 from IMDb. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes give it a 97%, a audience score of 92%. So even modern day audiences still love this. Did not win any awards. I don't know that there were many awards to be had in the 20s. Science fiction author H.G. Wells, though, says this is quite the silliest film. In a scathing review, he says, I do not believe it would be possible to make one sillier. It comes from the greatest UFA studios in Germany, and the public is given to understand that it has been produced at enormous cost, but it gives in one edifying concentration almost every possible foolishness, cliche, platitude, and muddlement about mechanical progress and progress in general, served up with a saucy sentimentality all of its own. Nathan? Is H.G. Wells being a little bit harsh here? I mean, uh, have you seen this one before? I had not seen this one before, but my goodness, this is one of those films that you hear how it has influenced every single piece of beloved film after it, and you can really see it. This is a movie that you may not have seen it before, but you've seen the parts of it. Mm -hmm. You've seen The Mad Scientist. You've seen the crowds in the dystopian. You've seen the Blade Runner city. It might be from a different time interpretation of what the future was, but you've seen this city. You've seen so much of this movie adapted by creators who loved it that I feel like there's a lot that we have seen. It's well put. Yeah, yeah it's a good way of putting that. Dustin, how about you? Is this your first time with Metropolis? Of course it is. Of course it is. I, I, of course, I've never seen anything this old. Uh, I think my the show introduced me to Dracula, 1931. So I only went back four years from there, but I had known of it. And I think several people, had you not seen the movie, had maybe seen the poster to take that visual and try to understand the movie from it is, I think, a misnomer and a mistake. There is something very cool about the poster and its style. But no, this was a first time for me. And then you throw on that it's extremely long. And then you throw on that it is silent. Uh, these are things that would have led to Dustin not seeing this movie. So thank you for bringing it to the table. <laughs> Nathan, do you feel like it's holding up? I also have never actually watched a full-length silent film before, and I was a little worried going in. What I hadn't realized was the fact that I was going to spend the entire time going, oh, 
that's a musical quote of this. Because the composer of this had some very clear influences from some of my favorite eras and specific composers of music going on the entire time. And add to that the fact that the visuals range from, yeah, there's some hokey model work every now and then with some of the miniatures when they expose it with water, but there's a lot of other visuals that's, that I just think, really? This, this came fully formed in this early science fiction film? This feels like this completely crystallized what this trope in movies would always be. It's kind of amazing. Dustin, what's it like as a modern day viewer? Almost, it's very close to 100 years ago that this was made. I do want to sort of address the high audience score. And I think it's always important to think about who's answering that question on a website like IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes. Is that that score, I believe, is skewed positively. It's skewed, or I guess I should say skewed negatively, where, where it's way higher than what I think most modern viewers would consider or think about. Because you have a lot of people who would just hear silent movie, 1927, no thank you. So there's a special population of people that have watched this movie and have scored it accordingly. Mm. And I think uh, similar to Western, similar to musicals, uh, when you go to things this old, I mean, we can think about our Abbott and Costello stuff. When you think about stuff this old, you have to want to be seeking this out. You have to want this style of movie. And so you, you have a bias in who watches it. Uh, so for most modern viewers, I would assume that this really wouldn't be their bag and that you'd have to have a want or the desire to buy into what's going on here. Now, what Nathan said about our composer with the uh, Hubbards and sort of uh, two and a half hours of uh, an incredible score accompanying, yes, we do have dialogue on cards. After watching this movie, I thought to myself, I wonder if even the dialogue cards were truly needed. Because the music can tell a lot of this story. But that is Nathan and I coming from pretty, uh, like a pretty heavy orchestral background. Maybe not for everybody. So I can't speak for all audiences. But if this is something that you can tune your brain to, I believe it holds up extremely well. If you like science fiction, this is, I think, a must watch. There you go. If you're not a science fiction fan, you know, if you don't like Star Wars, if you don't like the film, if you don't like Blade Runner, you're not going to like this movie either. Yes. It's, <laughs> right. I mean, it's the root of these things. But if you do like these things, my goodness, you got to check this one out. I was also afraid of the length uh, the first time I watched it. This is not my first time with the movie. It was restored when it got re-released again more completely is when I first watched it. And the cover that you spoke of, Dustin, just drew me in. I was like, what's that all about? Yeah. I didn't know it was going to be silent, and I'm normally that would send me out the door too. So it, I had the benefit of not knowing I was getting in for a silent ah. movie. So, um, but on the other hand, I was really pleased, and uh, it was just an amazing piece. Uh, it combined so many things that I like. It's influential for not only film, for science fiction as a genre. It's influential for the graphic style. It's influential from a wardrobe standpoint. It's influential from an architecture standpoint. It's influential. I can't speak to the score, but I mean. There's just so many things that this movie did that this is just a watershed moment in art and history. So I'm excited to talk about it today. We will spoil it. I think Nathan said it before. Every movie copies this movie in some way, shape or form. But nevertheless, there are spoilers that lie ahead. So we will be back after these messages. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason, and this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. 
So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. Okay, we're back, and this is your final warning. There are spoilers that lie ahead. Dustin, for those who haven't seen Metropolis since 1927, do you want to refresh people's memories? Metropolis, a city of skyscrapers and industry, is supported by a working-class population deep below, toiling 10-hour shifts to man the machines that keep the great city running. Its creator and visionary, Joe Friederson, works in a Skyrise office while numerous lackeys bring him reports. His son, Frieder, plays in a pleasure garden with consorts to live a life of luxury. He sees a woman named Maria bring the children of the workers up to the pleasure gardens one day and becomes instantly infatuated, leading to his pursuit and descent down to the Undercity. Due to some workplace accidents, a little too common, the foreman of the workers reveals to Joe that there are maps in the pockets of the workers, maps that lead them to listen to a woman in the long-deserted catacombs beneath the city, Maria, who Freighter had seen earlier, who speaks of a mediator who will come to end the plight of the workers to bring the underclass and the ruling class together. Joe seeks his colleague, Rotwang the inventor, for advice, who reveals that he has succeeded in creating a machine man who can take on the form of whomever he chooses. Together, they plan to sow discord in the workers so that they can rise up and be crushed to be put back in their place by masking the machine man as Maria and knocking her away. Their plan succeeds and the people riot. Destroy the machines and end their plight sounds good to them, but in doing so, they are in such a rush to destroy that they forgot about their kids. Maria escapes her confines and rushes down to save the children along with Freyder and Josephat. The false Maria has moved on in a Whore of Babylon role to twist the minds of the upper-class folk and lead them to sin, murder, and wanton lust. As the mob realizes that Maria is the one who's responsible for their fervor, ergo has led their children to slaughter, they hunt her down and burn her at the stake, all while Rotwang pursues his creation for his own machinations. Freighter and Rotwang battle over the ramparts of a cathedral to vie control of Maria, and after Freighter's victory, Joe and Grot, the leader of the workers, are stood at a stalemate. The mediator between head and hands, Freighter, the heart, comes between them to join the two men, and Metropolis has a path to move forward. That's actually pretty ambitious for us on the movie. Nathan, we, we're going to talk a lot about all the visuals in this movie. The story is pretty cool on its own, isn't it? This is one that goes through a lot of twists and turns, and you really got to be you know, reading all the title cards pretty quickly to achieve understanding of everything that's going on. But it's really interesting for all the themes that it's kind of touching on of this is the upper classes building a tool of oppression for the lower classes, then falling in love with it, and the lower classes wanting to rise up against the upper classes, but being misled and forgetting what they already have and hold dear and all that kind of stuff. And then add all the biblical themes and sort of the Siddhartha story going on 
along the side. There are so many things this storyline, which is relatively simple in its overall sort of thought of it's a dystopian world and we're going to deal with that, but it just touches on so many things. And then you add in this funny idea that might have been around at the time of all this new technology and occult ideas are kind of intertwined. They're both new fangled things or things that are mysterious and you're not sure where they're going to lead. So the mad scientist, for example, has like pentagrams around right next to his lab equipment and everything. Yeah. So this movie has a lot of ideas shoved into that one basic premise, but it helps that that basic premise of the above and the below is really strong enough that even if you don't get the exact details of what's going on you kind of understand what you know who you're rooting for at any given moment which does help yeah now nathan just dropped a lot out there and he covered a lot of things dustin is it too much to bite down or is it is it handling it all in stride i think it handles in stride i definitely don't think it's too much if we're talking about our plot of the downtrodden and the upper class and we have that story that by itself probably didn't need to be two hours and 24 minutes that being said the only thing that's too much is for me if we're going to include the occult stuff or we're going to include death and the seven deadly sins if we're going to include that kind of thing maybe the medium like the silent film the way that it worked out was ambitious. I would say maybe a little a little too much, just a little bit. But I didn't find it that distracting. It was still something that made your brain run at a higher capacity. Like, okay, now what else is going on here? The rest of it, the plight of the workers rising up, the separation of classes, that's already in especially in modern day, it's already in the wheelhouse of a lot of people, especially young people. Uh, so that makes it easier if you already understand that, oh, this is kind of a thing, and also covered in so many media productions for the last several decades, a tale as old as time, oppression. So aside from that, the things that are added in, I think that might be considered a little extra, but I wouldn't say too much. The only thing I would add is that a lot of this movie kind of lives and dies on whether you think that the ending actually solves the problem or if you feel that it is either deliberately or by omission or just willing the story to end after such a long time. Yeah. Whether <laughs> they're, okay, we're going to spend two minutes to shake hands and everybody's going to be happy after this, after all these crazy events, and we're all going to forget that actually some really horrible stuff was tried to happen, <laughs> yeah. but... We're just going to shove that under the rug real quick and hide it and move on. And I think that that kind of hangs over this movie after you watch it as a cloud, or at least after I've watched it, it lingers afterwards as sort of a, you know, this was an amazing experience. It, you know, takes you on a journey through so many different things. But are we really okay? Right. Yeah. Did it really close that knot? And it's quite, it, it's, it's hard in, in, that, in that part of it because. There are so many amazing ideas, and I think those ideas in and of themselves were good enough for me to sell this movie as something you gotta watch, but as just itself, as just a story, I wonder if that weakens it a bit. 
But we, we, we reach the point where revolt happens. We reach the point where the uprising has occurred. This happens in movies and it happens in places other than the Western world much more. And then there's the give up point. Well, well, what happens next? And luckily, movies can have a wonderful score and a meaningful shot. And that can be it. If you're willing to delve into, okay, well, now exactly what happens? There was a moment when I was watching when I was thinking like, boy, this whole mob seems really ecstatic to have burned this person at the stake when every single one of their kids is dead. Right. They don't know that the kids made it. They're just joyful that we got the witch when there's hundreds of thousands of dead kids. We're getting farther away from burning witches. I don't think we can. I mean, that's like your team winning the championship. Yay, we burned the witch. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was ecstasy. Uh, I mean, a momentary like, well, I guess we can take out our frustrations here. But yeah, that would have been harder to reconcile. Uh, but Nathan, you put it well, is that it is a difficult knot to tie. Uh, but maybe the task or the mission of the movie wasn't to lay out then the next plans there's no manifesto that accompanies this it's just all right well this happened and check it out the message of you know the heart connects the head and the hands look how cool that is for right now but uh, we're done solving anything i think that's a message for you to take away from the theater it's a you may not be okay you know i mean it's interesting i think a lot of movies would have joe friederson the master of metropolis meeting his downfall and demise in this process. Mm-hmm. Instead, he's walking out of it still the master of Metropolis, seemingly so. Fritz Lang and his wife at the time, Thea von Harbo, who wrote this, I think that they're turning back to the audience saying, what are you going to do with this now? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm thinking uh, it could have ended with we topple who's in charge and the streets run red with blood. But instead, we have this sort of question mark and I think that's enough, especially after the length of the movie. It certainly was enough for me. But uh, yeah, I, 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 I see it as sort of this could go one of many ways. And what we just saw, aside from, you know, let's, let's talk about the science fiction part of it. We just had a mad scientist create this artificial life that was enough to topple the city. And the city is great. I think that might be something about why this success could follow is that I don't know if any of the workers, whether they are aware of what goes on above or not, they're devoted to the machines working. But the city must be considered great. Like, like we have to believe that the head is still worth saving, that the greatness of the city was, it did lead to oppression, but can we keep the greatness up without the presence of an oppressed class? It's a, it's a philosophical question, but I think that is maybe an important part. It's not just a city. It's, I, I believe we must consider it like the greatest city. Absolutely. It's very interesting. I think I'm glad you brought it up. The humanoid robot thing is another one of those moments where, like Nathan said, I was like, whoa, 1927? You could, like, the fact that you could think of that at that point. I mean, robots were so not close to happening. That's a really neat idea. And they took it all the way to like Ex Machina style. You know, the humanoid robot that is looks like a human. I have to say, they did that. They did the oppressed class, you know, utopian thing, which, I mean, there's a lot of movies now getting made that are just, just dystopian movie. The um, repressed class rises up. There's so many movies that just only do that. 
And this movie goes beyond that to do those other things. It's really ambitious. And I, I got to say, it makes me think. It makes me enjoy. And I'm excited in this movie as it goes through. It's uh, also, to me, really interesting. We're at the earlier end of industrialism, and we're already looking at the dehumanizing effects of it. And, you know, there's also already that, you know, backlash of the combination of greed and the elite class that's prospering from the industrialization. So these are things that I just would have thought would have taken more time in history to play out before people would become so skeptical to be able to formulate these ideas. And no, as new as these things were, as new as steel, reinforced concrete, machines and assembly lines, and as soon as all this stuff is new, these ideas are here from the get-go. I think it's really forward thinking. Well, I think with this movie, I mean, it's, it's part of its legacy is maybe the early, I don't know how early it ever happened, but this version of the AI, we'll call it, this version of the machine man, of the automaton, like that is clearly seen throughout the rest of film history. But that's the thing I think that really makes this a science fiction movie more so than just a revolution movie. It's interesting to me that there's a question that is just, they walk up to it, but they don't quite get to talk about it at all, probably because they didn't have time, or I don't know if this is just (laughs) our modern lens on it, but there might even be a line at some point where they mention like one time, oh yeah, these will be the best workers. They will make our society even better with this. And then they immediately use that tool to you know, oppress <laughs> others and destroy yeah. society and all that kind of stuff. And they set yeah. it loose and they give it all these things. But there's this like one line where they say, oh, it might be able to help us. And there are a million movies that are just on that one concept exactly. And right. you can pull an entire thing, mention it, and then never go back to it. And I, I guess that's kind of what we seem to be tr- circling around is like, this movie is worth it just for the ideas that it raises as long as you kind of accept that you might not get answers to all those questions. I mean, this is the movie that Doom Call in 1927. That's right, yeah. <laughs> uh, from Joe down to Grot. Yep, yep, there's there's that call. There's like, We got a video call. They, they've, got, they've got like scrolling number screens showing from the... From the machines on their desks, they've got all these things that I'm looking at and thinking, really? They figured out that this was going to be the future and they're surprising about it. Creepy. Yeah. And then there's other things where, okay, they're really inaccurate. The fact that Rothbung's Frankenstein's laboratory essentially is exactly what every Frankenstein's laboratory movie in film would ever make forever down to the the old mansion that exists in the middle of the city for some reason (laughs) it exists in the middle of the city for some reason even the movie it's like and (laughs) yes and in a place that time has forgotten and it's like wow this was in someone's mind so clearly right now and it's fully formed and will continue to look exactly like this it's i gotta say also nathan and to your point it makes me also think to what we we're coming up on. There's been a lot of conversation about the impacts of artificial intelligence. And once again, it's going to have big consequences as we enter a new era of technology. So a hundred years from this, this was about industrialization, but a lot of things, there's this notion between the the head and the heart, sorry, the heart being the mediator between the hand the and head the, and the hands. The hand, yeah, the head and the hands. 
I think that's going to continue to still be relevant as we enter a new, a new age, strangely about to become more pertinent as we as we watch things develop again. We're going to have to have a movie at some point that talks about the head, the heart, the hands, and the tool, because pretty clearly that's like the follow-up to this is what do we do with this new fan i don't know it's it's kind of awesome that this raises all those questions yeah i don't think the question is even raised in this one and the presence of this movie at the time and its influence on what happens later is that it's up to other movies to ask the further questions Mm -hmm. because i don't believe in this movie anybody even brings up like is it good that we have this thing (laughs) <laughs> because all, all, all they know is that it looks like someone who tricked us. And what do we do with people that trick Arnhem? Uh, and, but the, there, there is no, hey, t- check out this machine, man. And Joe, who's extremely, uh, you know, played to be um, just kind of like, oh, okay, this thing exists now. That's good. And Nathan, you're right. It, they, they don't really get any further than that. This thing could help us. It's immediately used for dis- and uh, triggering some other greater events. But then we learn why it happened. It was, it was not a result of the success of Metropolis's greatest scientists. It's the success of the weird guy, in- which probably, I mean, th- there's probably some type of funding he may have. However, uh, his existence doesn't seem to be changed by the progress of Metropolis. So it wasn't the result of this great city that led to the creation of the Machine Man. It was the nations of a creature. I think I overlooked on my watch. It was here now, but it does it like lead us to, well, why was it created? Well, we learn, and it's maybe not enough time was, or maybe the right amount of time was spent. It's like, oh, actually, I created this thing because I was in love with hell and hell it's a person. married you <laughs> yes. instead. Hell is a person. <laughs> Helen. Yeah, yeah, that's what of it. And, and, and Helen, you know, married you and gave you a son. So there's this also like deep rooted, uh, whether it's jealousy or resentment that we're, we're looking at, like, oh, that's what led to this innovation, mm-hmm. not the success of Metropolis. Oh, there's bitterness for sure in Rotvang. Yeah, I was wondering for a lot of the time whether we were ever going to have Rotvang reveal that, I mean, Mr. Frederson, what are you doing? Or how dare you? You took my inventions, you took my the love of my life, you took all this and built Metropolis with it, and you left me here mm. to continue inventing oh. and working for you or something. That was I was assuming that the that was going to The burn it all down up. kind of thing? Yeah, and and he gets there. I mean, so right. the Frederson's plan is to send her down and she shook her hips and she caused a fuss. Right, right, <laughs> and 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 that seems to have been Rotvang's plan to sort of mess up the upper world city as well, so that they're kind of using the fake Maria at cross purposes. As a result, she nearly destroys everything until everything magically comes together. And it is revealed through a line of dialogue that the children are still alive and all the workers say, oh, okay. Oh, good. <laughs> One less thing to worry about. <laughs> I'm not that versed in silent movies. So when we did Charlie Chaplin's The Circus, I felt like I was seeing what I was expecting from silent film, which was, tends to be more humorous sides of things. There's heart in it as well. But I was surprised at how serious this was. This is kind of the first, not just fantastic science fictional 
voyage that we take. This is kind of a high concept rooted with a great deal of seriousness and is handled here. And I was surprised that they speed up the film. The actors do have enlarged motions. They do darken their eyelids so that you can perceive all these things. It's just how silent movie was made at the day. But it felt like it took me out of this less. When I watched Chaplin, I felt like this is a era that is so, so far away. Whereas when I was watching it here, there's elements of this that are still very futuristic. There's stuff in this that is so past tense that's so distant from me. It's beyond my grandfather's time. Like this is really far back there. So it's so foreign to me that it could be from the future as well. There's this wonderful blurriness that evolves from this world that we're in, where there's things that are so, so far backwards. Like, you know, their clothes might be somewhat rooted in the past and they don't seem modern at all, but they're so far from the past that they seem just as equally distant from something in the future. So what is future and what is past? We've entered this interesting time where it's all blurring together and you're reading this in a different way. Like, yeah, sure, maybe they will dress that way later in 100 years. Maybe people yeah. will dress with baggy pants that like look like they're riding pants or something like that. The styles and the hairstyles that might have gotten in your way. If you watched this in 1950s, you might have been like, this is starting to look dated and goofy. But now we've gone so much farther from it. Anything foreign like that, I mean, why wouldn't Frieder's hair look that way? Sure. Rotvang looks weird in any era, in fairness, but I mean... <laughs> but he looks weird in a kind of familiar, fantastical way. Yeah. I gotta say, the actors... I didn't have this strong disconnect that I often do with Silent. I'm not that versed in it, but this is the closest to a, being connecting with the actors that I have felt in a Silent movie world. I think you're touching on a lot of things that... It took me a good 15 minutes to kind of get over and wrap my head around the amount of some actors in this are doing stage acting and stage gestures and others seem to be doing things that are more in line with what cinema language is in you know what we're familiar with so for example Gustav Froelich who played Freider is doing this big almost slightly clown reading stage acting where he's using big gestures and he's clutching his heart and he's gesturing hugely and emoting and has a lot of face paint and his eyebrows do a lot of things versus his father who is this really subtle you know Fredersen Alfred Abel playing has this really subtle very modern feeling he moves fluidly between facial expressions but he stays very still and stern and periodically will make a smaller gesture but it never feels stage-like or theatrical it feels in the more modern naturalistic way of acting i agree yep those are two very good far ends of the spectrum i mean i thought the thin man was another one of those good like this dude is really threatening the henchman hired by joe i loved everything about his character it was so (laughs) here's another fully formed trope that will be exactly this way forever it's interesting. You've talked about Gustav Froelich, the guy who plays Frieder. I had worked in vaudeville. So vaudeville, you're going to have these big motions. And it's going to be lighter and more humorous. It's interesting that you are picking up on that. That's where he came from. He got the job. He was actually on the set. And the writer of the movie and the wife of the director, Thea von Harbo, said, that's a good looking guy over there. <laughs> Some early shots weren't going well with the, with the lead guy. And so she's like, why don't we use that good looking guy over there? And Fritz Lang's ah. like, Fritz Lang, who's not a nice guy. We'll discuss that shortly. It's like, you're out of here. Put the good looking guy in. So that's how I got the job. So it, it always helps to just be around and looking good, just, just for what it's worth. It works. It's got to be so much easier in a silent film era. Yeah, you don't really have any lines you have to memorize. You just have to open, your, open and close your mouth periodically when we tell you to. And you don't have to be fast. We'll make you fast. Yeah. <laughs> we'll fast forward. 
when you have to run and chase someone down or when you have to climb a, a ladder on the top of a cathedral. You know, aside from his um, almost back-breaking reactions, uh, same with Bridget Helm, who they almost contort their bodies when they're faced with whether it's an explosion or just a heavy emotion the, to be blown back away to show the audience as if you're on stage, like, this is how much it hurts me, to see him uh, grab at his heart. They're always grabbing at their heart or their chests to show without words, like, this is what it means to me. There's also a, I'm not going to call it comforting, and I'm not going to call it nostalgic, but there is really this, I'm going to call it like an alien closeness between particularly the men in this movie. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Like just yeah. the physical propinquity. They're more touchy. Yeah, like like when Freder goes up to Joseph Set, you know, there's like this like, are they gonna kiss? We don't have the social distance anymore. <laughs> or like or <laughs> dudes are a lot closer and more secure with themselves in the future than we are in this today. I, I mean it's so funny because I just think back to Jules Verne novels and other, you know, science fiction masterpieces, many of which were adapted into fairly early scientific movie science fiction movies. And Almost all of those are written from the perspective of some manservant of the main character who is in love Mm -hmm. slash just really close to. It's just a totally different relationship that exists today, but you constantly have to explain. It's really funny. (laughs) Yeah. Seeing you at the end of the day causes me to be unable to restrain myself from embracing you and being two inches from your nose. Yes. That's not how we do things anymore. The way I described it as alien, it makes me think like, okay, well, that, it might have been bygone. It might have just been part of how to portray emotion or closeness. Could be that too. Or it might have just been another, like sort of so old, it's futuristic. I, also, we as Americans have a very high social distance for comfort. Yes. If you go to other parts of the world, I, I even felt this in Germany today when I went there. I was like, give me a little bit of room. I'm just going to lean back a little bit. And then they lean forward. You're like, stop it. <laughs> Like, I just, I just yeah. want a little more room here. I don't need to know if you need a Tic Tac or not. So um, mm-hmm. if you go to India, they have a very low social distance. They want to be close to you when they're talking. That could also just be Americans looking at this in a very funny way. Very true. We don't talk about this. This is where we're talking about this being a seminal science fiction movie. But I don't know how epic movies were at this point to this scale. That's true. This is 25,000 extras that are involved in the making of this movie. That is a ton. The sets are enormous. They blew out all the stops for all the budget. Did not have a financial return for them. And for that, I'm sad. I think it deserved it. But they also undid themselves because movies were short in this time. They could turn theaters more. This got fewer showings in the theaters as well. And so this hit people and they just go like, whoa. We were not accustomed to thinking on this level from our movies. It was a challenging movie for people at the time. But I just want to point out that we covered Ben-Hur a long, long time ago. And we're just like, wow, the scale. Like they had to do all this without computers. They they had to build all this stuff. They had to get that many pieces of wardrobe to do this. You know, this movie had to get that many people to shave their heads. Yeah, they had to do it for real. It's epic. It's a seminal movie in the epic category as well. And there's several times that it is quite apparent. You start off with the workers coming in and out for the shift change. We see it for the children rushing at the flooding city to the alarm where Maria and then Freighter comes up. We see all of that and it does seem like that's a lot. We definitely see it with, with the children climbing up the stairs. I don't know how you could actually direct them 
But man, they nailed it with the claustrophobic nature of that stairwell as they're escaping up the ventilation shafts to the upper city. There's hundreds of hands on screen. Really hundreds. Not mm -hmm. just a bunch. And it all had to be done. Yeah, they're not filling it virtual stands at a stadium. This is all real. And, you know, I think, Nathan, you mentioned that the miniatures of the city flooding. Yes, with our eyes today, we saw it right away. But I don't think it was that egregious, or at least what they did for it like at the time. It's like, wow, this is really working. There's other scenes where there's like a whole bunch of workers leaning forward to listen to Maria, and you can see dozens upon dozens of bodies all moving at once to lean into her. Or you have when the false Maria is doing the dance, the dance of licentious sin, and the men in tuxedos are essentially becoming cartoon wolves, dropping their jaws. Like all of those, Russell, you mentioned the wardrobe. It all seems of a scale, like you said, an epic scale, where you certainly don't see that in movies anymore unless you're looking at a zombie movie, in which case we're talking about you know, a bunch of CGI effects. Uh, so yeah, it, this is rare to see something of this magnitude. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We talked about how Thea von Harbo actually wrote this. This is a novelization, so you can read it. I feel like reading it actually, and I've not done this before, but to lose Fritz Lang's brilliant visuals for this would steal from it. Reading it alone is not enough. And I like all the concepts that are going on here. I have not actually gone back and do this. I am curious to do this, but I would say when the film adds that much more to the story, we've got something really special here. The screenplay itself went through many rewrites. At one point, it featured an ending where the plot elements later became the basis for another movie of Fritz Lang's Woman in the Moon. This was just dripping with so much stuff that they even started off building new movies off of this. It's just amazing the ambition at the writing. Let's talk about the visuals here. This movie was incomplete for, for a long time, which we'll get into a little bit, and it lived solely through its visuals. This plot does not make nearly as much sense as it stood for many decades, and people still respect this movie for the sheer fact of its visuals alone. First off, it is so unfortunate that even today we're still missing a little bit of the movie in some of the later scenes where apparently Jo Frederson goes after Rotvang and Maria are that Rotvang is still holding her hostage and Frederson goes after them. And as a result of this, Maria escapes and manages to go down. And all of this has to be just in a couple of different title cards. It's extremely fascinating to me that we don't have the visuals, but we do have the original score that was composed and its notes about how it was supposed to align to certain things. And as a result, that's how we know some of the timing elements and have known, even though we don't actually have all the materials. So it's fascinating that different parts of this film have survived to different degrees. But my goodness, the visuals of this movie, architecturally, as Russell's mentioned earlier, it's this incredible, I have witnessed New York and I've been inspired to see this incredible futuristic world that is both inspired by the futurism of that, but also yet more classic and romantic and than a lot of later retro future sorts of things would go after. There are scenes from this that, for example, at one point, the workers have destroyed the heart machine of the city and the power is beginning to go out. And you look out over the neon signs that seem to be all over the city 
and and my head just goes this is blade runner exactly <laughs> and i mean it, i mean this is a city that has flying vehicles aka biplanes because that's what it was at the time that's what they could think of like, oh yes <laughs> yeah is, yeah they, they've got airplanes going around they may not have cars driving through the sky but they kind of do because they have bridges in the sky all over the place so you can see uh unfortunately even back then they knew bumper to bumper traffic in these cities was just <laughs> right. really awful but it's just all so spectacular and the details of course the director's father was an architect, and so you can totally see that this played into a lot of the visual styles going on here. And then at the very beginning of the movie, you get this incredible transition from all of that incredible scenery that makes up Metropolis, the organs that give the bell times for the workers, and they go down, down underground to the worker housing where... The elevators have taken them so far underground that it's a little bit strange later when we find out you can just walk down from Wang's <laughs> basement. But for the beginning of the film, you feel like you are going to the center of the earth, man. It is it is dark. And you've got these skylights that later turn out to be an ingress point for water to get in when they've broken some things. That part of world building is so just fun. Like, we're being flooded from the sky, guys. Huh. It's, I mean... The visuals of this movie are incredible. They are. And they figured out, hey, you don't have to wait for elevators anymore. We're just going to keep <laughs> them running all the time. Well, apparently just that get was on actually get a thing. That's awesome. It's terrifying, but yes, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but they're on the verge to, if they figured out that instead of waiting for the car to get from point A to point B up down, that if we just keep them continuously running, then that means we can presume that eventually they'll figure out what if we just have the car is on a track where you just get in and get out. And at that point, maybe, you know, decades in the future, they will have fixed their bumper-to-bumper traffic issue with their sky highways. They have elevated rail lines that are carrying large volumes of people as well. This is like straight out of like The Dark Knight or like uh, like Batman Begins, like with the elevated rail yep. running through Gotham. Yep. Fritz Lang made a 210-minute long film. It was cut down even at the time for its German premiere to approximately 153 minutes. That's at 24 frames per second, which in its American release, they cut it down to 115 minutes for what the Americans got. And the British archives cut it down to 91 minutes. And these archives are often how movies of this vintage live on. So we're at less than half the time. And it wasn't until 2008 that people saw a shortened version. The story does not make as much sense. They remove massive amounts of stuff from this movie and it was thank goodness in argentina someone mentioned I, I feel like i've seen a longer movie it was a really long movie i don't know what you're talking about to to somebody and sure enough somebody actually traced this down and recovered the footage his name is fernando martin pena he went to the buenos Aires in argentina there's a, a museum there and he went through their film archives and they found a 16 millimeter negative copy this is a different format so actually if you watch it today you'll notice these little black bars start to appear on the sides here and there. I'm so into the action, I really don't notice it as much. The film does get grainy. Like, you can clearly tell what was cleaned up and was kept and what was yes. added. But that is a strong indicator when you're watching it. Holy crap, they cut this? Like, if you were to actually remove all those parts with the black bars on the sides, not the top and bottom, but the sides, and the grainy footage is not there, it just would not work as well. And I mean, yes all these visuals and stuff we're praising for would absolutely be there. It's amazing. We're really lucky. One, for the show to cover it when we did. 
but to to live at a time where this you know we'll call it long's masterpiece because i'm unfamiliar with any of his other stuff that's just because i don't delve into the old stuff as much but to be able to see it in this fully restored fashion i think we all watched the 2 hour 24 version and though i know that it's long and long movies do wear on me I don't see where they could reasonably cut, like who made that decision to cut it down to 91 minutes. That seems completely separate than what you know our, our decision to keep in the first place was. Yes, you do see where the film is grainier here or there. And several times when I had noticed it during the watch through, I'm thinking to myself, well, they just kind of extended this scene by a couple seconds. But some of those things in those scenes, I believe one of them is the thin man talking to Josephat, I believe, in his apartment, where you get some of this graininess. And the subtle interactions between those characters were, that was deemed by someone, oh, we're just going to cut that out. Let's get to the plot. Let's get to where we're trying to go. And to view this as the art that it's meant to be viewed, and Nathan, you said it, to hear it with the, I believe the entire suite was re-recorded with modern recording technology. Mm-hmm. makes this version, I think the 2010 restoration, just so appetizing for all of your senses. Channing Pollock is the guy who did this. He's an American playwright, and he said that it needed to be shortened down. He said that uh, he drastically altered the inner titles, removed all the references of the character Hell, because in America we think of Hell as being something like, you know, heaven and hell. They removed all the Thin Man, so all of the henchmen's characters just completely edited out. They uh, removed many parts of Rutvang's original motivation for creating his robot. Again, you know, there's this puritanical sense of like, you know, is this anti-religious? I don't know. Let's cut it out. Like, and I don't think it is. I think I think they have something to say. The symbolism that that was there gets cut down. So Pollock said that the symbolism just runs right. People saw it, couldn't tell what the picture was about. I've given it meaning. And to which Fritz Lang responded when he heard that, he said, I love films, so I shall never go to America. Their experts have slashed my best films of Metropolis so cruelly that I dare not see it while I'm in England. Um, So, wow, savage response, perhaps fitting, though. I got to say the Pollock cut, while I've not seen it, can't be very good. It does sound like the intermezzo is where a lot of the cuts happen. Well, some some of them, I guess if you're saying that they got rid of Rotwang's like reasoning for creating it. No, that would be in the in the first part. But yeah, you guys know me. I'm one for a tight 90 minutes. But for something like this, it it doesn't seem feasible. Yeah, it seems like this is a film that unfortunately ran up against problems on all sides. Apparently, there were multiple copies sort of saved as was practice. But depending on where those main copies were kept, either they went up against their political situation at home where they were deemed a little bit too close to communist thought, so they got cut down a lot, and fortunately that's actually where we still have a lot of the dialogue from, is from the Nazi censorship records of what some of the dialogue was. And in America, of course, you've just described it, it was cut down to fit American sensibilities without really thinking, "Eh, maybe we should preserve the originals of things before we do this, but no, it was just destroyed and cut down, and of course elsewhere, oh, it's not sufficiently communist so we're not going to keep that either so (laughs) it's a film that raises ideas in all directions doesn't satisfy any particular any any one of those ideas all the way and so everybody cut it down 
and it's really unfortunate but that's kind of how that happened and it's fascinating to see like in 1984 it was revived by someone who decided to replace the entire soundtrack with contemporary music of the time let's get some freddie mercury in there and it'll make this movie great yeah i love the names associated with that i love all the names associated with that remake pat benatar adamant i have no interest in it though Nathan, it's your nightmare. They take away all that score that you love so much and they replace it with 80s movies. It is. And I may only be interested for the cringe factor or the like, how could you do this factor? It's 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 like wanting <laughs> yeah. to go watch it's like wanting to go watch David Lynch's Dune. I know, I'm sure it's going to be problematic and bad in so many ways. I tried to watch it once and bounced off it in the first 10 minutes because it was just painful to go through. But I kind of want to watch the disaster happen, too. Would it be better if, like, Toto did the soundtrack for it? (laughs) Going back to Lang, I think his story is pretty neat. He's rubbing shoulders with the German expressionist movement, obviously, in Germany. You know, he knows... The people who are in the Bauhaus, this is a institution to modern design where they were a full work of art, where all the means of production reflect what you're doing. It is about stripping down the ornamentation, embracing machinery. It's a, you know, it's a new aesthetic. German Expressionism, again, it's, there's very strong aesthetic influences in, in Lang's work here. And I'm actually, to Dustin's point, this is my only Lang film I've watched. I want to see more because I like his style. The visuals for this blew my mind. I like the stylistic decisions. You guys were talking about the cardboard cutout ground under the city. I thought that was brilliant. Buildings weren't that unadorned at that point. They're just simple, like white stucco boxes with punched openings. And there's there's this sense of like, they're almost like a forerunner to like Soviet housing blocks that mm. are to come. And while you might be aware you're looking at a miniature, I thought the simplicity of them and the stark austerity to them was something that I think really spoke to what was going on. Similarly, the city was just absolutely amazing. Like you said, uh, Lang saw New York and so did Harbo, and they just thought that this was an amazing city and this inspired them to do this. And gosh, seeing New York at the time must have been an amazing thing for somebody, especially with photographs not being as widely available. Because I felt that way when I looked at Metropolis. It's, it's just simply, simply amazing to look at. And that's why I just want to say again, this movie stood at the test of time. 80 years it ran, and people still respected it just on the visuals alone because the story is severely lacking when you cut it down. Yeah, if people were putting this cut-down version on a pedestal, then they clearly must have attached to something. And it's not until you get a fuller picture of you know, the restoration that I think that I can understand people really digging. But if, if you have to attach to something where it's just the visuals or you know, just the style. That makes sense to me, too. Apparently, from what I'm reading, Fritz Lang was dismayed. Adolf Hitler and Joseph Goebbels and the Nazi higher-ups dug this movie. Lang's technically an atheist. His mother was of Jewish descent. Nazis make him uncomfortable, and he was not real excited by this. And apparently Goebbels himself told Lang, we really love your film. We want to make you an honorary Aryan. Even though despite of his Jewish background, and they said, Mr. Lang, we decide who is Jewish and who is not. Hmm. Lang ends up fleeing for Paris initially. And then he, he actually, despite what he said, he does come to America. He divorces Thea von Harbo, who I believe from what I'm reading that she is more of a supporter of these Nazi influences, the writer on this one. So they broke up the marriage. Uh, she stayed. He did not. They had an amazing work. They did work together on other films, too. This is a special combination. So like Justin said, 
it's the right moment at the right time. And as Germany did, they sent a lot of really brilliant engineers. They sent a lot of really brilliant architects, artists. They had this amazing cultural mecca going during World War II. They turned their backs on some of the most brilliant people in their respective fields, and they shipped them right over to America, which was the biggest favor that, that could possibly be done, and some of them to other parts of the world as well. It's just amazing the brilliance that the Nazis had in their hand, and they deemed it as subversive or socialistic or that it was bad and counter to good traditional German reasoning. You know, oh, film should be this. I actually have my wonderings. If they are so against all of these other things, Nathan, where is it they like in this movie? Because I actually depict some socialist things going on in this movie that seems like they would be counter to what the Nazis were doing. I mean, I think that's why they cut it down so far. Okay. <laughs> You're saying the version they got was packaged for them. I don't think it's entirely possible to uh, hide the fact that this movie has a lot of narrative about workers being oppressed by the brain, but I also get the impression that this might have been one of those cases where Hitler being Hitler, he had all these ideas about wanting to be close to or associated with great art, and if he thought that something had that effect, even if it didn't really follow the ideals of things, he kind of wanted it in his pocket, more like a th an object on its own more than anything else that might explain why this situation could have happened, that it was, we see that you can make amazing things. We think that if you maybe follow what we want you to be doing, you can make things that we will like even more and will help us. It seems like something of how visionary this film was might have gotten through. Mm, that's fair. And, and, and in fairness, he rattled the cages of the Nazis. And they did not like a subsequent movie called The Testament of Dr. Mabuse. I've not seen it, but they banned that one. They viewed that one as anti-Nazi, which that is then a good time to get out of town. If you're, yes, if, right. So I'll catch the first biplane in New York, please. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's one of those things where his expressionist influences, though, the darkness, the shadows, the contrast and these things. We just covered double indemnity. And in that movie. Billy Wilder, also German, has these expressionist influences. American cinema in the 40s is about to blossom with all of this. So Eric Stronheim, Otto Preminger, who did the movie Laura that we did. Mm. These directors are coming with a certain school of thought. It is just as it was in all these other respective fields of science, chemistry, architecture. And it was the gift to the film industry to hand these geniuses and their influences over to the American film industry. Without it, we would not have that noir genre and that style that came with it. So thanks, I guess. Right. I suppose. I mean, if it's zero sum and the artists want to come over here, thanks. But not thanks for genocide. That's bad. No, no, we don't. We don't want that. <laughs> Fritz Lang, though, does not sound like a fun guy to work under. It was a draining experience for the actors. Are you talking about the cold water one? The taking poor children off the street and putting them into very harrowing experiences for a little bit of food? Or the having your actors do their own stunts and not really giving them enough safety equipment slash putting open flames near them. Which one of these are you talking about? Because I've heard, but because I've <laughs> run across a lot of these things about this movie. You're not kidding. There's just so much here. I mean, it even starts with just the sheer number of takes that Fritz Lang does. You're right, Dustin. All those kids seem like they're perfectly, to get children to do what you want on film is difficult. And when you put them around lots of children, they start to goof off. They give themselves wet willies. They start playing tag. They start like goofing off and giving each other moose ears. There's none of that in here. 
So Fritz Lang would shoot over and over and over and over again. And he did this even with his adult actors. There was a scene where Frieder must collapse at Maria's feet. And he had him do it continuously for two straight days. And his body was in pain and he had a hard time standing up the end. You know, Lang is like, ah, good. I pushed you to the point where it looks like you would fall over. Good. That's, that's good. That's real. We've seen this with some other directors at times. Kubrick. Yeah. How do you capture exhaustion? You exhaust. Exactly. I'm writing a movie about the hardships that workers must <laughs> fall under when they can't understand the genius of the brain. What, what should I do to capture this feeling? <laughs> I, I like Thea von Harbo's defense of Fritz Lang there. She said, in fairness, all these children were malnourished children and they were given warm food. There was plenty for them to eat. But they were put into chilly water for 15 days of filming for that flood scene. And no then having, watched, having watched this movie before really knowing that, I was watching those scenes. And, and for one, I didn't realize how many extras they'd had. So I kept on looking for the evidence of another stairwell where the children were maybe running around so that they could do another run through of, the, of, of these scenes where they're going up staircases or something. Because, wow, there's so many kids. How are they doing this? Also, wow, these kids are really pulling off the poor children of workers impersonations really well. This is very impressive. You couldn't do that today. No one would ever think that you could have done that in an ethical way. But no, I don't think anybody <laughs> thought that at the time either. Yeah, it's just amazing the abuse that the actors took. Bridget Helm, this was a sad one saying like the night shots also lasted three weeks. They did dramatic moments where they would follow Fritz Lang's directions. They would do it, but then they would forget this incredible strain that, that he would put them under. And for instance, when Grot drags her by her hair and burns her at the stake, she fainted during that scene. Her hair was getting pulled. She was actually getting dragged around. And yeah, she catches on fire. The smoke from that scene when they shoot it causes her to pass out. Super dangerous stuff. There's another scene where she has to kind of plummet. She's doing all this on her own. They don't give her stunt women on there. So there's planks that are 25 feet above the ground some padding at the events but it's not adequate enough and so it, it's it hurts the amount of abuse the actors take in this era is amazing even like when the scantily clad dancers are performing germany's really cold it's winter time and so like they were super cold and he kept having them stand out there and do it he's like uh, have some cognac warm up keep dancing if you felt like kylo ren it was like going more 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 and someone's like i think it's time to stop i think you got him so I feel that as Fritz Lang in this one. And Palmer did have to come in and, you know, say like the producer had to come in and say, hey, maybe we stop with these flood scenes and these children. But also this movie's budget was shot. He got fired during the production of this also. Think about modern audiences or when you think about any audiences, it's because we focus and we devote all this time to movie making, Russell, that we understand and we read about the terrors of production. But that isn't common for everyone. Whether you have knowledge of how your vehicle works or whether you have knowledge of how that building was constructed, the knowledge of putting, let alone a TV series, let alone a commercial, 30 second commercial, like shooting days, I, it was really, really saddened to hear that Fritz Lang was this tough. I'm, I'm kind of saddened to hear any time that like a director's tough. Uh, when work is hard, I don't really care for that. When labor is hard, like, hey, yeah, it's a tough job. You should get paid accordingly. But like the idea that things should be worse than they should be and that like hey we're gonna get real close to burning you oh, oh we burned you well kind of got good footage uh we were talking about smoking the bandit russell where like uh oh the car came too close to the kids whoops <laughs> like th there's there's times when it's just like ah, oh, I, I really wish i didn't know 
And I think audiences don't really want to know about the, the troubles of their favorite movies or like how to get that take they actually needed to do this sort of extreme thing. But what we got and what we now see and hear and are able to view, I'm not going to say that like, you know, proof of the puddings and the eating, but it, it does kind of make me sad to hear that. But, you know, uh, we have this thing that we're covering 100 years later. It must have meant something. I look at it this way. At least those guys gave their blood, sweat, tears and bodies. At least it was good. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I mean, at least they didn't do it for Geely. No, yeah, they they didn't put that much torture through their bodies for Geely. <laughs> um, Nathan, the camera work on this is super impressive, is it not? I didn't think cameras could even do this at this point. It's so interesting. You know, most of the movie is shot in a way that I would describe as conventional, but then every now and then there's a shot like when Freighter finds Maria's scarf or a part of a, a bit of fabric it zooms in in a shot that's angled just under his hand as if in a pov shot as he approaches it there's a shot later when they're trying to break out of the air vent staircase out of the workers city and the camera swings as though it's on a pendulum forward at them and it's kind of fascinating this movie must have been an experiment as much as it was a figured out pre-planned story. I say a lot of things seem fully formed in here, but they were clearly coming up with it as they went. So it's amazing that as much of it worked out as it did. I always wondered, why did they speed up the film in this era? I did not realize they're using hand crank cameras, getting enough frames per second when things are moving fast. You know, a projector is only moving like, you know, 16 to 18 frames per second when cranking it by hand, and they have to speed it up to film at the film of what's being shot out there at 24 frames per second. So that makes everything seem like it's going fast. Again, you don't realize these things when you're watching it before. You're just like, it kind of looks silly when everything's sped up. Or, you know, if it's funny, that actually makes it funnier. I don't know why things are funnier when they're sped up. In this case, like when they're running their race in that stadium, you're kind of like, it's early in the movie and you're, you're getting adjusted. You're like, whoa, that's a little bit jarring as a modern viewer. Wow, thinking of the race, it really seems like... Like, like that's yesterday or like that was a week ago when you think about yeah. the main <laughs> the main part of this movie i had forgotten about <laughs> i truly had thought like wow that was that doesn't seem like a different movie but yeah there's something about the speeding that you're right in in comedy it does make it a little funnier but th this movie i would say is actually pretty devoid of comedy yeah most movies have some humor i would say this is one of the few we've ever covered that has none i mean really none yeah the closest for me was just dramatic irony at the end when there's this whole domino sequence of the mob is going after Maria, who they think has duped them into getting all their children killed to burn her as a witch. But it's not actually that Maria there. And they're chasing the good Maria. Meanwhile, the bad Maria is being carried by the crazy club crowd as out, mm -hmm. out into the streets. And they run together and there's a whole vaudeville routine in which they get switched. And now the mob has technically the correct Maria to burn as a witch. And actual Maria gets away. But then Freighter sees not Maria getting burned and tries to break in even though he doesn't really need to. Actual Maria gets grabbed by Rotvang, who, who has a whole other plot about her. There was a certain amount of comedy in the more dramatic irony realm of... Things are happening because people aren't understanding each other entirely. And it is kind of silly, the scenarios that occur right at the end to create create these things. But 
that's yeah it. silly like like hg wells would call it silly or even like to use the correct use of like ridiculous like this is so silly that it's worth the ridicule he gave yeah i, I guess i i can see that but as far as you know, he sounds jealous even in the review <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <he> does. <laughs> um, and the other thing that really surprised me it's called the schuften process where they create a mad effect they take a large mirror and they place it at an angle to reflect a piece of artwork while the live footage is being shown to expose a projected footage and the silvering of the back of the mirror is scraped off very strategically in places so that only that part would remain and these mirrors were shooting the mad effects from other separate places the amount of hard work that goes into shooting those to get these big environments that they're in and to change these is just amazing like they do these double exposures and stuff with these like the shots with all the eyes you know swimming around they have to do this in film. When Maria rallies the underground population, there's some really cool, almost very art film kind of things that are going on there. Like when the bald workers are being worked, there's this scene that they're doing it to make it seem like there are more of them than there perhaps are, but also it, there's the hardness of the work that's being conveyed into there. It really is amazing. They did get 4,000 bald people out there though too. So they did actually have a lot of them. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you said no fun was had. At one point, Gustav Butcher, one of the assistants of Lang, was trying out the harnesses, which were not comfortable at all. But he was trying out the, the harnesses where they were being thrown from the machine because they didn't want to use dummies. They actually had to throw real people around. And they lifted him up to the ceiling and went off to lunch. So fun was had by everybody who wasn't Gustav. Got him. Did you want to add anything about the soundtrack? Wagner and Strausser influences in this work here? There's Wagner, there's Strauss, there's Tchaikovsky. It's very interesting at the end how there's essentially... The film score is going back and forth between the film's own melody and the 1812 overture to indicate what an upheaval this is and what a big moment everything is happening. And it's kind of, there's an amusement factor to it, just knowing, okay, this is pulling from this and this is pulling from this. But at the same time, it's really fun for me to just say, ah, yeah, I know that. There was stuff that was so big. I loved the off key of the, I think like the, the, the Marceline. There was stuff that was really meant to not just show like the dystopian nature, but like, oh yeah, this is kind of the sound of revolution. During my watch through, really a lot of it was my listen through because I was captivated by the score the whole time. Yeah. There was one particular moment. I think it's when we're seeing the song of the machines like the pulsing heart of this city. I believe you could probably extract how much influence of Danny Elfman's scores come from our guy here, Gottfried Hupparts. If you want a one-for-one -one example, watch the inventor scene of Edward Scissorhands and compare that theme to our theme of the machines in Metropolis. And you can see, oh my gosh, this is the same. I was getting the bigness and the swelling of things like the like Shostakovich or even like George Gershwin Rhapsody in Blue, like its length and its robustness. I would say maybe even more than viewing it, I enjoyed listening to this movie. And I won't be one to say that I recognize the Wagner or the Strauss. Not really, not as much. But I did recognize the DS Irae. DS Irae, yes. Yeah. Now, there's several different versions of that common thing that has happened throughout film and just also throughout, we're talking video games and animes. Like, it, it's, you've heard it before, but I don't think I had 
ever been impacted by it as much as I was in this movie. So Russell, when you're like, is there anything about the soundtrack or the score? Gosh, uh, it, it really is maybe what I'll remember of this movie the most. And I will tell you that for the ending win of the hands and the head is the heart, what we end with, the triumphant nature of that brass, almost brought a tear to my eye. Now, I was exhausted because the movie was long, but I, but I was just like, wow. Even without any further explanation, like we talked about an hour ago on the podcast, we talked about like, what well, does it really end? Why are we okay with this? The sheer weight, the gravitas of the music selections was really, really something else. And probably the biggest music impact of this year for me. I appreciate the score more from having you guys talk about it now, so... It was good. I did enjoy it. You guys want to handle some awards? Of course, Russell. Absolutely. MVP, Nathan. I have to call out Brigitte Helm, who played Maria. She's good. She has to do pious saint, but then she also has to be a total devil lady. She has to go through the whole range. She has to be a robot. She has to be a human. She has to be, yeah, it's quite amazing how much she has to do and pretty much every scene she was in i was very captivated she has to be the master of abominations as the whore of babylon her, her evil maria face is so good by the way it's that, good that, that little like almost like sour like one eye twitch she's okay <laughs> as good maria but you know when you see her in action as bad maria like oh she got cast for the crazy she got cast for the, <laughs> for the, for the crazy yeah. it's more dastardly than the wicked witch of the west it's really good that's fair mvp dustin i actually was gonna go with brigitte helm until i was really thinking about the movie and if i didn't give it away two minutes ago gottfried hupparts as the composer of this score how lucky we are to be able to hear an updated recorded version with modern technology combined with the classical pieces he used. I was moved further than Fritz Lang's vision, and I was moved more than Brigitte Helm's acting. I said this year, it might be of all movies we've covered, Russell. This was really impactful. And let's not forget to call out Frank Strogel and the Broadcast Symphony Orchestra of Berlin and the Broadcast Orchestra and Choir who were the ones who recorded this new yeah. updated version for this current release. Yeah. Amazing performance. Great info ad. Yeah, the, the performers, yeah. I'm going to go with Fritz Lang. It's not that he treated his actors particularly well, but the vision, the ambition to do all of this, perhaps too much of a perfectionist at times, but who can say that when the results are so good? I think Thea von Harbo did an amazing job writing, and I like your choice of Bridget Helm there too. It's just there's so many people doing everything that they do at the highest level. But I'm going to go with Fritz Lang here. The visuals, the feeling, the vibe, everything I like is built on this movie, and I didn't even realize it. It's just amazing. The science fiction, awesome science fiction movie playbook was already made in 1927, and I didn't realize it. Best supporting actor, Nathan. Got to go with Alfred Abel, played Jo Fredersen, the father, the ruler of Metropolis, the conniving, subtle, incredibly threatening presence who's just every scene that he's in it feels like you've got this evil mastermind guy who's just so disapproving of his son and everything about that and oh i let you live this life of luxury but i've gotta set the thin man onto you at all times and the way he plays his facial expressions i mentioned earlier are like a different kind of acting as if 
from years later. And it is a little bit strange to see the two next to each other because you see him acting and it's like, oh, yeah, no, that's just normal acting like today's acting versus what is happening by pretty much everyone else around him. But there's something captivating about that contrast. And I think it's just wonderful to have. Nice. Dustin, how about you? I'm going to mimic with uh, Alfred Apple. I was actually feeling some Peter Cushing as Grand Moff Tarkin. Mm. I was feeling that from him. The slick back hair helps. He did a lot with little. You know, a few lines, subtle acting. Uh, We already discussed how great Brigitte Helm was. And I suppose we aren't giving as much credit to uh, Gustav Froelich. I mean, I think he did a great job too. But as far as supporting Alfred Apple, totally. Are we saying here that Heinrich George's Grot is essentially Darth Vader? He's the uh, guy who, <laughs> he's the foreman of the workers, and he's, uh, <laughs> he turns good in the end? No, maybe. Maybe, yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> I, I do like both the character and the performance of Grot. I just don't know. If, I don't think it was enough for me to put him in the best supporting space. I do like your, your, where your head's at. <laughs> Inspirations. My best supporting actor, and you're right, Abel's acting is top notch. I still love the character, the wardrobe, the performance of the thin man or Friedersen's spy. <laughs> He's just so good. So Fritz Rasp is my best supporting actor. He's just a delicious villain. Yeah. Menacing, seemingly bankrolled, powerful. You don't have to show physical prowess. You can just exude menacing. Yeah. With that hat and that pale face and those eyes, I kind of got a little bit of a Joker vibe off of him. The hat did come off as silly to me at first, but I really dug it, you know, behind the newspaper. Oh, you know, uh, the haircut looks ridiculous in No Country for Old Men at first until you see him, you know. Yeah, the, the Neil Diamond haircut for, uh, <laughs> yeah. for Anton Chigurh, um, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, once you see him kill somebody, you're like, whoa, turns out you are scary. So. <laughs> yeah. Hidden Jim, Nathan. This one's really a toss-up, and I was going to bring up the Thin Man as Hidden Jim, but I think I think you've got that one covered, so I'm going to bring up somebody else. Rotvang, the inventor, played by Rudolf Kleinroche. As I've mentioned, just crystallized the mad scientist on screen perfectly, and it's wonderful. He chews all the scenery. It's, it's very fun. Do we get Frankenstein without this guy? I don't know. I know this much Frieder needed to walk Maria home because he's a creepy dude to be chasing you through dark catacombs late at night. So uh, (laughs) Dustin, a hidden gem. I'm going to go to Rotvong as well. In his strange house in the middle of the city, there is a big library. He's got his secret entrance to the catacombs. He also has a neon desk lamp that I feel like I could make with some electroluminescent wire. It's kind of in the shape of a spiral. Mm-hmm. First of all, there are people who like the movie A Christmas Story, apparently. And there are people who like the leg lamp from it. And so you can purchase the leg lamp. You cannot purchase Ratvong's desk neon spiral, but I bet I could make it. I think I, it's, it's going to be a project of mine. It is cool. I don't like you besmirching the Christmas story. So, but just It's yeah, too bad. I, 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 mean... I wish it was better than it is. Oh, it's so good, though. My hidden gem is going to be Fernando Martin Pena. Without his strong interest and dedication with going through the archives in the Buenos Aires library, we would not see the masterpiece as it actually is. So thank you, Fernando, for 
digging through those archives and finding it for us and putting the film back together into near completion. Good call. Recast. Now we're going to do something a little different because nobody knows anybody from this era. And instead of just saying we're going to throw Charlie Chaplin in there, Buster Keaton, just because they're people that we know the names of. What if you made this movie today? Just what would what would some of your big castings be, Nathan? You can just go right down your list. The one part of this cast that I really felt was hurting my enjoyment of things and knocking me out of some scenes was that the actor who plays Freighter is really doing the stage thing more than anybody else. Vaudeville. Yes. And to to the point that I just felt like it just needed to be dialed back a little bit. So if we're going to replace anybody, let's, let's get someone, say, Timothy Chalamet in there, who gets you, A, a little bit more youthful energy in there that might give you the sense of, yeah, this is the son of a uh, wealthy house, but maybe has the action chops to do other things. So that's my call. And you still have the hair. I get it. Dustin, if you were going to remake this movie today. It's crazy that this happens every once in a while with certain categories. But for us to recast the exact same actor, I don't think that's happened before. I also chose Timothy Chalamet as Freighter. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, put, I, put, I put Michael Fassbender as Joe. I put, I, orig- I originally thought Jennifer Lawrence as Maria. Then I thought of the crazy eye and I thought Natalie Dormer could do that well. Mm. For the thin man, I'm going Crispin Glover because he already played a, a thin man character in the uh, Charlie's Angels series. And I thought he stood out in that series. And then for Josephat, Sean Astin. Nice. I was playing around with Grot, and I think I'm going to go with Brendan Gleeson. Yeah, I like, I like all of this. I certainly would say this movie. My recastings uh, are going to be, so I went Tom Holland for Frieder. Yeah, that makes sense. That's good. I went Sophia Lillis for Maria. So she's, she's an it, the new it version. Joaquin Phoenix is my Joe Friederson. Good. Russell Crowe is my Rotvang. Mm. Nice. It does, Dustin doesn't like it. Mm. Elijah, Elijah Wood is my Joseph Font. And Tom Hiddleston uh, is my thin man. These, you, I, you might win. I think I like your movie better than I like mine. That's good, man. This is a little bit more of a joke follow-up recasting, but there is something else that I saw in this movie. Justin, you mentioned a certain similarity between, say, Frederson looking a lot like Tarkin, for example. Yeah. But for me, I spent a lot of this movie going, why does Maria look like Gene Wilder in Young Frankenstein? Oh, my God. It's another (laughs) black and white movie that he has crazy hair and his eyes do, like, the same really intense contrast in the eyes thing this is uncanny it really is and like the the frontal like like not in profile at all but just straight on wow uh, it is I, I can't unsee it man Very it's fun. so crazy <laughs> <laughs> best shot nathan for this i think my favorite moment has to go to the vfx team as they would later come to be called for the amazing shot of the Blade Runner city of Metropolis just before the lights go out. The atmosphere they build into it, the incredible depth of this set that you get the sense of how big this city is, the scale of the vehicles, and then to have like neon lights and all sorts of little things in there in a way that feels so at once modern and futuristic and old-timey because the architecture, a lot of it, has that... It's got, it's got like Egyptian influences. 
it, it has the aesthetic of when a whole bunch of architects of that era propose ideas of what modern of what then modern skyscrapers should look like and half of them come up with these gothic things that look like Pittsburgh's Cathedral of Learning and you and you look back at that and say oh deco my gosh. too art deco like, yeah. seems to be in there too yeah it's amazing it's totally 1989 Tim Burton Batman era this city of Gotham but it's Metropolis and it's 1927 I love that you said that because I love that movie and I, I thought the same thing too. So Dustin, best shot. It was in the catacombs when we've got Roch Wong chasing after Maria. In which case, you don't really know how he's getting around or how he's handling himself. We don't really know the style or the history of what his hand is or why he lost he's it. He's got a mechanical like Doctor No hand. Uh huh. Which is essentially just a rubber glove. But then there's a shot with he's got his flashlight essentially pointed directly in Maria's face. And then they show you from her POV of what she's seeing, which is his dark sunken eyes with the flashlight coming at the screen and behind him. And because we, we are within 30 minutes of our sort of death in the seven deadly sins intermezzo, you see some skulls that are just kind of barely in focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I thought that was a cool I'm not going to call it attempt at terror as if it failed. I just think in this movie where there's a lot of danger and there's a lot of other themes, that this is a horrifying shot for like horror purposes. And I really liked it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did you like those uh, seven deadly sins like coming to life all of a sudden along that line? I did like it, but that is the area where earlier I said this might be on the verge of too much if too we're artistic. trying to tell a more concise story. But Got for it. the art of it, yeah. And, and then that also goes back to the, you know, the first hour where we're looking at the Tower of Babel. Like there, there's stuff that is interconnected. It's not throwaway. But um, yeah, I, I thought the, oh boy, when death comes to life, I was like, that looks so good for a hundred years ago. I know. Yeah. This is one of the hardest, best shots of movies I've ever done because I literally had like nine of them. I was like, that's the best shot. That's the best shot. I had, I had that too. <laughs> and, yeah. and I got down yep. to the end of it. And I was like, it's really hard. It's impossible not to just pick hell transforming into Maria. The camera work to watch an actual actress of Maria being transformed into hell, the robot, this evil Maria, is just so good. It's amazing. They made this out of like wood formed pieces and they had like kind of a uh, coating on it to make it look metallic. And the suit was super tight. And unfortunately, it made, you know, it made the actress once again pass out and uh, she mm-hmm. couldn't breathe in it effectively. So abusing the actor again. But uh, Walter Schultz Mindorf is the guy who made this. And there's like a wood filler applied to make it look metallic, even though it's not like actually metallic. And this body plaster that was put on Bridget Helm is just amazing. And I got to say, it's really cool. I'm skipping ahead. It's my favorite piece of wardrobe, too. But this shot is just outstanding. I can't believe they did it at the time. Gosh, I love the Babel flashback. I like the cityscape that Nathan did. I like the faces of the people being seduced by Maria. I love the machine Mm -hmm. face. Like when when the machine turns into a face that's like eating people. I thought that was so amazing. Yeah. Mow it. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. And the one point perspective use in this that gives you really strong points, like in the cathedral, uh, like in the catacombs. I mean, this thing is like, I can't believe how good of a cinematography is. Again, for 19, I just keep saying it's like, I didn't know you could make a movie this good in 1927. I just did. Wow. There are a lot of movies made now that don't have cinematography this good. Agreed. Best scene. Nathan. I think the just incredible crescendo of the end of this movie 
I can't overstate the degree to which it feels like there's this long, slightly winding story that all of a sudden just falls into a series of, and this leads to this, and this leads to this, and it's perfect. And the whole chase and escape from the underground scene that leads into that is just extraordinary. I mean, we've talked about kind of the uncomfortable sides of how that was shot and everything, but the dread and the desperation of you have to get the children out of the buildings before they collapse because of the flood, so Maria has to, like all the workers have been doing, start struggling with the machine to ring the gong, and all the children are gathered around, and they're desperate, and then they get... Uh, way out and then they have to go up this staircase and it's really uncomfortable looking because they get to a grate and they have to break out and that whole sequence is just incredibly stressful and dangerous feeling and Mm -hmm. it's amazing how then it leads to the surface and then the rest of the movie is just set so well by that whole sequence it's amazing the amount of panic and suspense that you get in that, like the desperation, it's amazing. It is actually, I'm not just saying this, it's not like exciting for the time, it's just exciting. Yeah, it is. I'll dissect it a little bit and say that only the scene in which they are, because that's my same sequence too, but not the entire sequence. I do enjoy how well they nailed the claustrophobic staircase, and it really even seemed like the iron-barred door came off correctly. Like, they did it right. <laughs> like, it seemed like that's how it would work. But really, the, the part of it that mattered to me was the culmination in, in, in the alarm. Yes, we, we did have Maria struggling with, like, the levers. That was really beautifully shot. But when, when Freighter comes down and they embrace, I, I really, then the music swelling at the time really kind of knocked that part out of the park for me, but I, I, I really liked that. We see that a lot, the male and female lead, you know, kind of coming together. And for some reason, this 100-year-old movie in black and white and no talking uh, did it extremely well. So that's mine as well. I'm going to be one note here, but I'm going to really focus on the water, the flooding. It took 15 days and those children really gutted it out, but it is, I hate to say it, but it, it's worth it. Like, it's really an impactful scene. Like, it's, Watching the flood come in from the ceiling, taking that set over. And those kids got some soup and <laughs> some hot bread. Yeah. I, was, I had this like sense of dread, like watching these kids just pouring out into the water, like trying to get to the high ground on the statue. And I was sitting there going like, oh, this is just like, I don't know, like the notion of like all these kids being like drowned. Yeah, you're right, Nathan. My heart was racing and it stayed pretty fast all the way to the end. Like Frieder's fight with Rotbang at the end is good, but it wouldn't be as good if they hadn't got your heart escalated you entered a roller coaster before that yeah oftentimes roller coasters drop on a big drop that will then carry you through the rest of the ride that flood is like a big drop on a roller coaster like where you're like okay all these other little turns and stuff like that like you've got my adrenaline up and i'm i'm excited three for three on that kind of Mm -hmm. i already said my best wardrobe piece but nathan what's yours that was probably the most iconic piece of wardrobe from this movie but I will call out the incredible seductress dance going on in this movie. There's a moment at the very beginning of that where the robot Maria is standing with a kind of gown outstretched under her arms, and she's backlit by this spotlight that makes it seem like the gown itself is this glowing halo around her, and it's very, very spectacular. Mm. 
Yeah, and the sped up film actually does something creepy there. Like when she's yeah. shaking her hips, it's not just like, "Ooh, look at that." It's like she's doing it faster than is humanly possible because of the sped up film, and you're just like, "Oh no, this like machine like is like going to hyperdrive, hypnotizing these people." Some that's yeah. one of those moments where the sped up film went to work for them. You know, and there's also something special about that particular like shimmering gown being completely backless, really driving all the men wild. I chose the thin man's hat. I loved it. I, yeah. I, I made it sound as if I was maybe being uh, like, like kind of poking fun at it, but I really thought it was cool. There's something else, though, which is that he does have his own cigarette case holder mm-hmm. when I believe Joseph Fett offers him like something. He offers him something. I presume it's cigarettes because he pulls out his own holder. And in his holder, he shows that he's got the like the proof or the evidence that like, oh, you were coming here. Mm-hmm. But there's also something that I think this is this might either be just something everyone used to have or people of certain status had but there's a uh i believe there's a very small like matchbook sized match holder that has a little opening where you can write notes and there's a little stylus style pencil or pen that you can pull out of it do you guys notice this i don't think i noticed this particular thing so i'm glad you're pointing it out he's writing a tiny little note and this is something where before a mobile phone was something that we had in our pockets, having your own reliable lighter mm-hmm. when you couldn't just buy one at the convenience store. And having that would be important. But I believe he's got a little match holder that has essentially a small notebook on it to write small notes. And there's a stylus that comes out of it. And, and that's something that I noticed. I was like, either that is 1920s future or that is something that used to be commonplace where you would have as part of your repertoire uh, like, for instance, I have a tool in my wallet that is a comb, a screwdriver, and a socket wrench. Um, That's not why it's called a matchbook, is it? Dude, do, are we, are we on to something? Did the, big, did the big boat boys just break something? <laughs> Maybe. All this water and there wasn't a big boat for you guys. I am disappointed by that. No, but I will say that the flooding scene made us like, you know, Titanic wouldn't have that flooding drama if it weren't for Metropolis. change one thing nathan as i've mentioned and i even said that this is my favorite scene in the movie but the effects when the waters start taking the buildings down are a little bit hokey the buildings are really as you said russell they look perfectly they get the idea of worker housing across i think that's all fine but as soon as the water starts breaking things a little bit it's literally the only effect in the entire movie that came across as anything but the finest to me Mm. as everything else wow you might be able to see through it but you know with modern eyes you see through it but you feel like there's so much effort into it and so much thought into every little detail this was the one moment when i thought ah they built the city and they maybe only could destroy it one time or something Mm -hmm. and so the scale of the water, they didn't necessarily have the technology at the time to understand how to make the speed of the water flow and the scale of the ripples and the way that the buildings fall apart look a little bit larger scale than they actually are. So if that one thing could be updated, I think it would just this whole movie would just be a total masterpiece instead of a visual masterpiece with like one very minor quibble. So that's 
what I would change. This movie is well over two hours long. You found something that pulled you out of it that much from 1927. In correcting this thing, you've actually praised the movie so much. It's funny how that sounds. (laughs) I mean, um, that is partially intentional because, yeah, you could pull out a lot of things from this movie. You could try to make the storyline a little bit more condensed. The ending, eh, but I don't think that those things are something that I would change if I went back. I think I would just try to improve something that was pretty impressive but took me out a little bit dustin what's your change one thing you had asked me is it too much earlier and i brought up something that i think was too much which is the uh the death and the seven deadly sins in there and the tower of babel the things that are rooted in a scripture i don't think it's wrong i just think it's long i do want to see the horror of babylon but i want to see a wreaking havoc among the upper city citizens in a different way the shake your hips and men go nuts like that is one of i'd love to see four or five other ways that people are gluttonous or sloth like or whatever i'd like to see that i think that would have had a big impact and probably would have been fun to see and shoot uh, instead of some of the i mean i know you guys are architecture boys but like some of what we spend time on, I think, could just be shifted. And so, no surprise, I'm asking for the movie to be shortened, specifically during the intermezzo. Hey, the intermezzo is supposed <laughs> to be a light palate-cleansing snack in between courses, not a full 30 minutes. So, uh, Dustin condones the Channing Pollock cut. And, you know, How dare you? We should just go back to that. <laughs> How dare you? Don't even mention that name. <laughs> I think he wants to change the soundtrack back to the 1984 version, too. No! <laughs> Here comes Pat Benatar. <laughs> we get Rod Stewart on there, at least? Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, might change one thing. I don't even think I like it after Nathan gave his. I, I have, has anybody ever changed one thing that then made you not want to do yours now? So, I mean, so uh, hmm. I, I was thinking initially, Joe Friederson could be more concerned about his son Frieder finding out about the oppression of others. (laughs) I want him to be a little more embarrassed and like, okay, I'm guilty. I know it. I'm enslaving people. Okay. I don't want my son to know about it. So, (laughs) um, you know, I like this notion of the care that he has for his son that may not fully come through because it does later in the movie, but there's a greater sense of betrayal at Frieder having this screened from his way while he lives blithely in the uh the garden of pleasure which sounds very pleasurable so (laughs) (laughs) so i just wondered if that would now nathan said i wouldn't change these things because now and now i wonder that myself best quote nathan we shall build a tower that will reach to the stars having conceived babel yet unable to build it themselves they had thousands to build it for them but those who toiled knew nothing of the dreams that of those who had planned and the minds that planned the tower of babel cared nothing for the workers who built it the hymns of praise of the few became the curses of the many babel 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 between the mind the pl- that plans and the hands that build there must be a mediator and this must be the heart well done nathan dramatic too Dustin, is your best quote a long pregnant pause? Now what I'm going to need to do is say the quote like I imagine he would sound. So, this is Grot. I am Grot. Tomorrow, thousands will ask in fury and desperation, Yofraderson, where is my son? I I loved him throwing that back at him. Yes. I I I thought that that was really meaningful. I didn't cast him, but I was thinking Momoa would be a good Grot. That'd be fun. All right. My best quote is the mediator between the brain and the muscle must be the heart. No surprise there. And <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of 
it'd be hard. Like that must be the official quote. Like we picked good ones that were unofficial. That must be like the official quote of this movie. At a five star scale, Nathan, half star intervals. What would you rate 1927's Metropolis? I could go back and say, well, yeah, the story at the time, maybe they didn't have it all on hand. Yeah, there's some effects things that are weird. And it's a really long movie. But honestly, this is one of these things where the individual parts are so good and there are so many amazing ideas in this that even if the story doesn't totally wrap them up in the perfect way for me, I still have to give it a five just for the incredible score, the visuals, a lot of the acting. It's just enough that I have to give it a five. I realized watching the silent movies are Nathan's thing because they're heavy on score. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it helps. I've learned this now, too. <laughs> right, but it, it, it can't just be like a ragtime piano, right? <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say, they're not all going to be this good, Nathan. <laughs> but you, you realize, Dustin, that's where we got Shostakovich from. We oh, got great. him from silent movies. That's what he was doing when he was, when he was growing up. I, yeah, I didn't know that. I love yeah. that. Dustin, five-star scale, half-star intervals. What's it going to be? We cover movies that are influential and important to film history. And most of the time, I do not rank those extremely high for the sake of their importance. I also put certain movies like musicals and westerns into boxes that like, you have to be into that box. You have to look for that box in order to rate it. I think that the IMDb scores and the Rotten Tomato scores are indicative of that. That being said, this is a five-star movie. I was blown away. This movie is nearly 100 years old. I couldn't believe what I was moved to. And in part, I mean, like I said, I gave the MVP to Huppert's here, but you can't get that done anymore. You can't be moved with a silent film like this with a score. That's something special. And if you've never done it, because it's not just the rating, it's a recommendation. I recommend that you let this movie take you where it wants to take you. Wow, powerful. I think I can't say it enough times. This influences everything from Star Wars to Superman, Frankenstein, Blade Runner, Total Recall, Brazil, Terminator, even Charlie Chaplin with the turning of the cranks during modern times, Batman, Ex Machina, Fifth Element, Soylent Green, Robocop, Planet of the Apes, I mean, Akira, like just so many things that we all love that influence other things that we love. When someone says that Bob Dylan is their favorite or the Beatles or Nirvana, it's not just what they did. It's everything that came after them that they enabled. Yeah. And it's the whole world that they opened up. This is the creation of a box. Like Dustin said, this created the box to put these things that I love so very, very much in. I know you guys do too. Thank you, Fritz Lang, and thank you all these wonderful people. A hundred years later, your movie is absolutely worth watching. I'm so glad that the rest of it was recovered and it makes more sense now. Five stars for me. I love this movie and I do recommend it to people. You got to be in the right frame of mind. You got to know it's long and you have to prepare what a silent movie's like. But even at that, it holds up on its own. You don't have to keep saying it's good for the time. Like for Dracula, I kept going through the saying like, this is important and this is an interesting piece of film history and I'm enjoying studying it. Metropolis, I just enjoy watching. Yeah. Yes. Dustin, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? Yeah, and it's funny because I've, we've got Nathan on the show, and you know that Nathan Lutz and Dustin Mobartis are your big boat boys. We covered Titanic back when Lizzie wasn't a host yet. And we're going to go back to James Cameron as well. 
So uh, here are three James Cameron films for you. I've got option number one, The Abyss from 1989. A civilian diving team is enlisted to search for a lost nuclear submarine and faces danger while encountering an alien aquatic species. Option number two, Avatar from 2009. Paraplegic Marine dispatched to the moon Pandora on a unique mission becomes torn between following his orders and protecting the world he feels is his home. And option number three, Aliens from 1986. Decades after surviving the Nostromo incident, Ellen Ripley is sent out to reestablish contact with a terraforming colony, but finds herself battling the alien queen and her offspring. What are we going to do, Russell? Oh, man, I, I had so much fun doing Alien. That was a great episode we did, and I would really like to do Aliens. Aliens. All right, we've got it. And Nathan, thank you so much. You're one of the show's favorites. You're one of the people who helped take this show to new heights and we really appreciate you coming back this was a great movie to cover with you and you made it a great episode to listen to i think so thank you so much man hey thank you i'm so glad that i have now experienced this movie that i've always heard about and never realized it's actually still a good movie yeah yeah it is so thank you all the Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We do want to hear from you, so subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us on our YouTube channel. Give us a like on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free, so we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon forward slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening, be good to each other, and watch more movies. Dustin? I ain't Captain Walker. I'm the guy who carries Mr. Dead in his pocket.